You are listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I am your host, Peter Horgan. On this podcast, I will be chatting with folks who care deeply about the climbing environment to discuss the advocacy work that's happening beyond the crag. My aim is to connect more climbers to the important work that these advocates are doing day in and day out. From the small local crags, to the nation's iconic landscapes, and to the offices of our nation's capital, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. Since 1991, Access Fund has been keeping the crags, boulders, and alpine environments around the country conserved and cared for. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. Hey everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate podcast. My guest for this month's episode is Ashley Milanish. Ashley is based in Lexington, Kentucky, and is a former board member of the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition, and now for the last three years she has held the position of Executive Director for the Coalition. Ashley sits at the helm of a local climate organization that has been involved with a lot over the past couple decades. The patchwork of land ownership that makes up the Red and its increasing popularity has certainly presented its challenges. During our conversation, Ashley dives into how her and her team finds the best ways to optimize our organization's leadership to maintain healthy relationships with private landowners, government agencies, and what the strategies are for ensuring that this world-class destination is properly cared for for future generations. The Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition is a perfect example of a local climate organization that has a wealth of experience and expertise. As Ashley will highlight, a lot can be learned from interacting with other LCOs, and her organization can be a great resource for any individual or organization out there seeking any kind of information on running an LCO. Ashley was a great guest and has some unique talents as you will quickly learn about in the first few minutes of our conversation. I had a blast chatting with her and hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Ashley. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Um, well, to get started today, I really I like to gain a little bit of uh, background knowledge on my guests to see where you're from, your personal climbing history, and what other things you got going on in your life. So, yeah, where'd you grow up? Are you from Kentucky originally? I am from Kentucky originally. I have kind of lived all over, a little bit in Louisville, Shelbyville, Burlington, which is in northern Kentucky, and then I moved to Lexington for college. And been there ever since? Pretty much. I left and came back a couple of times, but didn't go anywhere adventurous, really. So. <laughs> well, it seems like a pretty good a spot. Yeah, it seems like a good spot. You know, I, I was there a couple of weeks ago and drove through to pick up my friend who flew in from New York to, for us to go to the Red. And uh, yeah, it seems like a pretty cool city. Yeah, I definitely love it. I mean, I have to say in the past like five years, Lexington has grown so much that I've come to really enjoy it way more than I did even in college. Um, it felt like a lot of, it just kind of felt like a college town when I was in mm-hmm. college, which is great. That's what everybody wants when they're in college. But once you're 30, you're like, okay, well, what else can I do? <laughs> right, right. So it's nice. The communities have really developed. There's a lot of new art, a lot of new music, things like that coming out. So it's popping. Great. Awesome. I thought you were to go the other way and say it's getting so crowded. And it's like, oh my God. No, it's not. That's the best part. It's <laughs> really not that crowded because everybody's yeah. like, why do you want to move to Kentucky? It's great. Awesome. <laughs> so have you spent most of your time climbing in the red or around Kentucky? Where have you uh, been around the country, international? Um, pretty much exclusively in the red. I've taken a couple of trips like down to Chattanooga, down to Rocktown. Um, ironically, when I first started climbing, I started climbing in college, my last year of college, basically. And I studied abroad in Geneva, Switzerland, but I had only climbed like three times before I went to Switzerland. So I was totally out of my element, had no idea what I was doing. 
it was kind of a nightmare, but I took my climbing shoes and I took my harness to Switzerland <laughs> and I took a bus 45 minutes like every week to go to this little bouldering gym outside of Geneva. So that was pretty entertaining. I met a couple of people there um, and it still didn't go outside. I just wasn't ready. Now I look back on it with such shame. Yeah, you're <laughs> like, oh, okay. I missed, there's a missed opportunity. Oh my God, it so much. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. In addition to climbing, I saw you're an aerial artist. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I study aerial acrobatics and contortion. Um, So about five years ago, I had moved back to Lexington. Um, I had lived out in the red for like a year and I kind of just was like, okay, I'm ready to go back to full civilization and, you know, have Wi-Fi mainly. Uh, (laughs) Like Netflix, (laughs) like everybody else. No, but anyway, so I started doing aerial acrobatics with my friend Jessica. She opened a studio here in Lexington and um, just kind of went under her wing and she trained me kind of, you know, a mentorship just like you do in climbing back in the day. So that was pretty great. Um, So I've, I've learned a lot. I've traveled. I went and did a contortion intensive in San Francisco last year, so that was an adventure. Well, yeah, you're the first aerial artist I think I've I've ever talked to. Um, do you see any I don't know congruency between aerial artist uh, artistry and climbing? Yeah, they're really similar, to be honest. I mean, the athletics involved in both are very gymnastic. That's exactly um, what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, and so just the technical aspect of, you know, fine-tuning and really understanding your body, that connection really comes in. And Ariel, the biggest difference is there is a kind of creative artistic element to it, obviously, with performance art that you don't necessarily get with climbing. Of course, you also don't get the outdoor aspect that you have of climbing, so they're not exactly the same, but definitely related. I find that the more I do of one, the less I can do of the other because it takes a toll on your body. Both yeah. Of them. I was at the crag yesterday and this girl, like literally in the next climb over, was doing some aerial um, arts, I guess. Did she have silks hanging? Like yeah, yeah. She like, fabrics? yep, she was like jumaring up this rope and like setting up like some static lines to, yeah, nice. she had like a big, like, um, this big purple drape uh, hanging from the ropes and she was doing all kinds yeah, of yeah. Cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. So just silks. Yeah, Wait, exactly. in Colorado or yep. in Kentucky? Colorado, yeah. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. <laughs> I was yeah. like, I guess you could do it here, but the routes are pretty busy. <laughs> right, right. But they're very overhanging, so I, I could see that being beneficial as I found out yeah, the hard it would way. Definitely being there. Be beautiful. I, I've known a few people who have done it actually. I've thought about it, but I don't know. I haven't talked myself into it yet. <laughs> Not for any good reason, just busy. Well, yeah, speaking of busy, in addition to your aerial work and everything, um, the reason why I have you on the show today is because you are the executive director of the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition. What is your history with the coalition? Were you on the board previously or just a volunteer? And how did you end up in this ED role? Yeah, sure. So this is actually my third year um, starting like this summer as the executive director. So the board was kind of looking to hire somebody part time. The workload for the board was just becoming overwhelming. Um, Our board is all volunteer operated. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these people have, you know, full time jobs and families and they're putting in just hours upon hours. And so they just needed a little bit of help. They reached out to me actually and asked me to apply. Um, They had some other applicants as well, but I'd been volunteering for several years. the president at that time, Josephine, kind of knew me through my volunteer work with them and through some other things um, in Lexington in the community. So they were just kind of looking for somebody with strong communication skills and really good project management skills. And I'm kind of a nerd. I really love organizing things. So I think that's what she was psyched on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So how long? And so you've been in that role now for three years, you said? Three years. Three years. Yeah, three years. Awesome. 
What kind of uh, corporate fundraising and educational events are you in charge of? I saw that in the little job description uh, on the website. Yeah, so one of the biggest things we do every year is Rocktoberfest. It's a three-day climbing festival that's held out in the Red River Gorge. Um, It's an outdoor festival, and we have over 30 corporate sponsors that come out to that, and it's operated by over 100 volunteers. So it's a pretty huge undertaking. Um, I spend probably a good six to eight months organizing it, um, working with everybody to kind of build it all. And we have a few of our board members are really involved in that process as well. Um, that is our largest fundraiser for the year. And so it's really important. It brings in usually around like seventy to $75,000 a year for us. Um, and that's, you know, huge. That makes up a huge part of our budget. It helps us pay our mortgage. Outside of that, I also help with Johnny and Alex Trail Day. So this is mainly an event that our land managers organize because obviously they're doing all the trail work and the project planning there. And then I'm just kind of doing like the party end. So it's kind of my fun event of the year. (laughs) Um, I just get to, you know, bring a band in, have some food, throw a big party for everyone. And who doesn't love that? Oh, yeah. Music Um, and food. Yeah, that's pretty great. So the last couple of years, too, um, we worked to develop a community liaison program. And so this is kind of to help the coalition have more of a presence in regional communities. Um, We have people that are traveling from all over the states, all over the world, really, to come to the Red. And they don't always know how they can help out or who we are, who's maintaining some of the properties in the Red. Um, So our community liaisons are just a way that we can have, you know, representatives in, say, St. Louis or Chicago or Atlanta or wherever people may be traveling to regionally um, to the red so they can help us like spread news about events and things like that. So that's been a pretty big success. And then lastly, I definitely love to give a shout out to our Jim to Crag program. We've done five of these so far this year. We just kicked this program off this year. Um, and this is just kind of an educational effort to help people understand outdoor ethics in the red. If you're coming you know, here for the first time, or even if you've been before, but maybe you don't exactly know the lay of the land, or you're from out west, and you're like, hey, what are the common practices here? Um, This is a great way to just kind of understand, like, what we're, who the coalition is, who the other property owners are in the red, and, you know, how we can all have a good relationship and keep climbing open for everyone. Yeah, you got, this coalition is huge. I mean, what you got to manage is huge. There's so much land out there that the climbing is on. We'll get into this here in just very shortly what the manage, what the land management looks like out there. You guys got a lot going on. And, you know, I'm from the West and I was out there a couple of weeks ago. So I was definitely trying to figure out what the ethics were, common practices were. And I learned a lot, like lowering versus repelling. I'm so used to repelling down from roots out here, but I guess the common practice there was to lower off the top, you know, the top anchors. Yeah, there, yeah. there are all kinds of funny things. Like, for instance, stick clips. Stick clips, um, yep. Yeah, stick clips are huge here. People actually, like a lot of developers will make the first bolt so that it was made for a stick clip. Yep. So if you come and you're like, why is the first bolt 25 feet off the ground? <laughs> you're like, oh, because they, they just expect you to use a stick clip to clip it. Because a lot of times some of the starts are the hardest part, right. especially with erosion. Yep. That happens. So it's a safety thing sometimes. Yeah, of course. Erosion. We'll, we'll get to that as well. Oh, yeah. A so much later. erosion. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, everyone, pretty much everyone had a stick clip. We showed up without one. But, you know, everyone was so generous and like they they would offer to let us, you know, use theirs before we even asked. If there wasn't anyone around, we just get a little brave and kind of just go for it. (laughs) And everything, you know, turned out well. So, yeah, um, I think one of the other things 
too that people don't always think about is you know if you're coming from other places like out west we have a lot of public lands Mm -hmm. and so you know a lot of times there's a big general swath of land that has the same rules and you come to the red and you can drive 15 minutes and you're on somebody's else somebody else's property with someone else's rules right so just understanding that and knowing where to look is a big part of the process the corporate fundraising wanted to backtrack just a little bit to the rocktober frest um event you guys host that at the land of the arches campground right or that has been there the past four or five years or something um actually this will be our third year third year okay or sorry this will be our fourth year at land of the arches campground this year i'm sure you know dave the owner of land of the arches well he is he's the man and i just want to give a shout out to land of the arches staff i would encourage a lot of folks to go camp there. there's a wonderful facility with the large airport hangar you know airplane hangar to go hang out in and since it rained a lot, we ended up camping there the last two nights since our tents just wouldn't stay dry. You yeah, said, it's it, made a huge difference with Rocktoberfest, too, because yeah. it used to be, like, outdoors under a tent. And, you know, if it rained all weekend, oh, man. So having an indoor area has really made a huge difference. I bet. Yeah, you said, like, what, 700 people or just several hundred people, like, fill that place? Oh, there's over a 1,000 for a thousand, the weekend. Over yeah. That's yeah, crazy. it's pretty big. It's really yeah. fun. I definitely encourage people to come out. We have a big like movie night on Friday nights. There's usually a band and a DJ, one or the other or both. It just depends on the year. On Saturday nights, we do yoga for climbers. Um, we have, I think last year on Saturday and Sunday, we probably had like 15 or 16 pro-led clinics. Um, really affordably priced too. So in all levels, I mean, there's clinics for people who have never climbed on a rock before to advanced athletes looking for, you know, technical feedback. When it, when does the Rocktoberfest happen? Rocktoberfest is always Columbus Day weekend. So this year it is going to be October 11th through the 13th. Okay. Copy that. All right. I'm looking to come back in the fall. So maybe I'll have to planet around there i know the access yeah that'd be great yeah national advocate summit is right around there um this year in seattle but right on let's keep this rolling uh like i mentioned earlier the rgcc is a big coalition got a lot going on it's had a really long history you've dealt with a lot of issues over the years uh bolting bans private landowners, including oil companies, which was a really interesting juxtaposition to experience, you know, being at the crag and then hearing the oil pump turn on <laughs> and start pumping and scared the hell out of me a couple times <laughs> over at the drive-by yeah. crag. Yeah, it's like right down the hill there. And then, uh, of course, the increasing use and popularity over the years. So when and why did the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition initially form? Sure. So the coalition initially formed in 1996. And this was as a reaction to the Forest Service issuing a bolting ban in 1993. And the coalition worked for a while with the Forest Service to actually negotiate the ban to be lifted. And part of that involved doing trail days at walls like military, where, you know, you'd seen a lot of use and a lot of erosion. And the Forest Service was saying, no, you know, like you're not, you're destroying the land and you're not keeping up with it. So we're going to close it. And so the coalition kind of as a reaction was like, oh, no, OK, we, we have to add this conservation mission. We have to care about, you know, or rather we have to figure out ways for people to become involved in this process. Because um, I don't know if you've ever worked with the Forest Service or with the National Park Service, but 
there's always a huge process. And so you do have to know, like, if you want to go to a crag and revitalize that area and put in a, a trail, for example, or do maintenance on a trail, lots of things have to get approved for that to happen. It's a big project. So that was kind of the initial development of the coalition was a reaction to that bolting ban. Yeah, I have worked with the Forest Service. I'm currently working with the Forest Service on a huge stabilization report working out our trails around here. So I'm very familiar with the whole NEPA process, environmental review, um, everything that goes into that because you can't start putting shovels in the ground without going through that process first. And exactly. It, yeah, it can be cumbersome. It can be a long process, but it's, it is kind of necessary before you start doing any of that kind of work. Yeah, it can be a long process, but I think it you know, the one thing that people forget is it does give the public a chance to speak up. Right, of course. And so that has actually come to our benefit as climbers so many times. So it is really an important process. Mm -hmm. So we try our best to make sure that we're respecting that. And, you know, that's become a huge part of our mission is working with government agencies and other nonprofits and other private landowners. Is the Forest Service the only one with federal land out in that region? Yes. Yeah, yeah Daniel Boone National Forest. Yeah. So. Okay. Another issue you guys have dealt with in the past was oil companies towing, towing cars, and then I think I saw some other restraining order put in on them. Can you dive into that a little bit? Uh, I can certainly try. Okay. <laughs> so I haven't been around forever, obviously, right, but right. for the oil companies, um, a lot of the issues there is just lack of communication. And so most of that, we haven't had any problems with the oil companies in a really long time. I think we have a pretty good relationship um, at this point. And most of that is just climbers being aware of and respectful of their access to their equipment. Um, they do own the mineral rights on the land, so they have the right to come and extract oil. And we have to make sure that we don't infringe upon that. So what would happen is, you know, climbers would come and they didn't really realize, I think, what was going on. And they would park around the oil wells or block the equipment. And then you have this huge oil truck that comes down on any given day to extract oil or to read a meter or whatever. And if they can't get to their equipment, they call somebody to come tow the car. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's, it's pretty simple, really. But... Um, we, we did reach out over time and there's a lot of different oil companies in the area too. So mm -hmm. it, it depends on which property you're speaking about, but we have talked with some of these companies at this point and have a much better relationship. And now we have, you know, good signage and we post publicly and on our website regularly not to block oil wells and things like that. And I, I think that climbers are much better educated on that nowadays. So it doesn't seem to happen quite as often. Good. Yeah, it's it's great to establish those relationships with interests that might, you know, that are com might be competing or on opposite ends of the spectrum, extraction versus recreation. Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, it's hard. We have a huge conservation mission, like I was talking about. So sometimes you're like, oh, man. But at the end of the day, we do have to find a way to all work together. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. So there's the Forest Service, the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition also owns properties and there's other private landowners. So I wanted to get into that, that land management uh, picture a little bit here. So the Climbers Coalition owns several properties in the area. Do you, do you have all those mem areas memorized? I know there's several of them. And do you know what yeah. those acquisitions looked like uh, when you did purchase them? So I don't know specifically what the acquisitions looked like just because I wasn't around. Um, however, I know that we were in the process of securing the Bald Rock Recreational Preserve mm -hmm. in 2016, 2017, when I came on. Mm -hmm. um, so that 
was basically the the landowners decided they wanted to sell and we knew that this land accessed the mother load and the chocolate factory and that kind of stuff and these are world-renowned climbs people come from everywhere to climb these so instantly we were like oh my gosh we have to buy this yep. we have to secure this you know so we we did that. I mean, it, we worked with the Access Fund, and I know for all of our properties, we've worked with the Access Fund to help get, you know, a lease um, started that was, I guess you could say, doable for us as a nonprofit organization. So I think the first one, let's see, Pendergrass Murray Recreational Preserve was first purchased in 2005, and then Miller Fork was purchased in 2012. So those are our other two properties. Um, and between the three of them, there's over 1,100 acres, so it's quite a bit of land. Um, the Bald Rock Recreational Preserve and the PMRP back right up into each other. So that's that's one big chunk, but it all has the same road and everything that you get to. The Miller Fork Recreational Preserve is a different entry point. It's, on, it's still in the southern region of the Red River Gorge, but it's a different access. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys used the that revolving fund that the Access Fund has that program. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that we did like use loan. that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's such that's such a good tool, such an exceptional it's tool awesome. to take advantage of. Yeah, their their revolving fund is actually really really beneficial to LCOs in general. Mm-hmm. And I always encourage people, like for instance, if you get a lot of donations, you can always overpay because then that's money that goes right back into that revolving fund for other people or for your organization in the future to then secure more climbing land. Are, do you guys plan, as, are there plans to acquire more areas in the future? Is there potential around so I can't really say. Um, if something profound leaps out like the Bald Rock Recreational Preserve, I think we would definitely try to do everything we could to save it and secure it forever. Mm-hmm. However, I don't know that there's anything on the radar immediately. Gotcha. Um, we have been working with the Forest Service to check out more public lands. So that's kind of in the works, but it'll probably be a long time, you know, as you know, with NEPA and everything, it'll, it'll be quite a while before we could announce anything formally, if okay. we can. Yeah, So yeah, that'll definitely. be interesting. Um, right now, I think our biggest thing is we have 1,100 acres. We have a part-time executive director and a volunteer land manager. <laughs> so we're doing our best to like, just maintain the property we have, educate people on how they can help us maintain the property. And our land manager, he is amazing. So is our assistant land manager. They've been busting their bottoms to really try and go back to some of these older established areas that like, for example, the PMRP, you know, there were already climbs on it when we purchased it. And so you have a lot of just like climber access, like developer trails when the routes were first bolted, people are going straight up the hill, right? Oh, so yeah. they've gone back in the past few years that they've been land managers and they've been trying to revitalize some of these areas. So that's kind of one of our big things right now. You know, I hear that theme over and over again of those trails just going straight uphill. What, what's the quickest way to get to the crag? That's what climbers seem to do. <laughs> yeah, That's good at going back and trying to revitalize and, and change that up a little bit. I feel like there's like a no before you go mantra kind of thing between you and other private landowners. There are like waivers to be signed and like release forms to, to get filled out before you go for liability purposes. Do you find good uh, acceptance of that? Um, people like really adhering to that and filling out the waivers and doing what they're supposed to do to access these areas? As far as I know, everyone fills out the waiver. Yeah. You know, if I meet you in the property, for sure you filled out your waiver. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, no, we've, we've had pretty good success with it. It's very easily accessible. You can find it on our website, literally on the front page. It's just rrgcc.org. 
um, other property owners in the area like Muir Valley and um, Greening Fork Nature Preserve, they also have their waivers really easily accessible. So that's always, you know, really important for people to understand. And there's signage, I think, at the entrance of every property. And the Muir Valley actually started charging for parking, so they do $10 a car. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of different with each property owner. So that's, again, one of the things that we cover in our Jim to Crag program. And it's also something that's pretty accessible online. But just kind of understanding where you're going. You know, most people don't allow hammocks, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, your valley and Grading Fork do not allow dogs. So that's always, you know, comes to a surprise to some people. But if you show up with a dog, they will turn you away. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that can be challenging. I know there's, you know, everyone loves their crag dogs, but... Comes yeah, with, uh, everybody loves yeah. a good crack dog, but you know, <laughs> everybody also loves their lunch sandwich. So yep. hopefully as long as your dog doesn't eat the sandwich, we're good. How does uh, a climbing community establish and maintain a healthy relationship with a private landowner? So the biggest thing is just communication. You know, if, I mean, it's like a neighbor. If you buy a house in a neighborhood, you probably at some point meet your neighbor and say hello and have a friendly, cordial relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the same. If you buy a piece of property, you know, out in the country, eventually you kind of meet your neighbor and you have a conversation and, you know, you just say, hey, if you ever need anything, let me know and vice versa. Um, So it's, it's just knowing and being respectful of people's property and being willing to talk and you know, for instance, we actually had a, a really cool neighbor um, down near Miller Fork. He had some new fancy farm equipment. And he wanted to test it out. So he did some volunteering to help us regrade the road, oh, which perfect. was great. That was amazing. Um, you know, he kind of contacted us. And, and so we, we have good neighbors and it's nice. But I think on an individual aspect, like if you're a climber coming to the red and you're trying to know how do how do I stay respectful of different landowners, make sure you check out their websites, fill out their waivers if you're going climbing on their property. Don't just go onto Grandpa Joe's property and go climbing. You know, you don't walk into somebody's property and just randomly start climbing something because you don't know who they are. So just keep basic, you know, basic um, respect is I think the biggest thing there. Grandpa Joe, is that a little chocolate factory reference there? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just really a name yeah. I made up. <laughs> well, that was, my, that was my favorite area that we went to. We went to Bald, Bald Face uh, three times, drive by a couple times, and Chocolate Factory is just just immaculate. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, it's just absolutely beautiful out there. Yeah, and you can stay dry when it rains, too. That's so true. <laughs> you got to know the dry cags in Kentucky. That's a really big deal. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I haven't seen rain like that in a long time. It doesn't rain like that in Colorado, and it just was a torrential downpour, thunder, lightning. It was really cool to be climbing while all that was going on. It's kind of scary, too, though. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, for sure. Definitely felt like I was in like a jungle out there sometimes. Right. So the final, we talked about the Forest Service earlier, but that's the final land manager in the area. Do you have a official like MOU written up with them? What's your relationship look like with the Forest Service? Yeah, we do have an MOU from, ooh, I want to say 2005, and we're actually in negotiations and pretty much ready to sign a new MOU going forward. Um, so just updating things that have changed. You know, the old one, I mean, it's over 50, it's about 15 years old. Yeah. So things in the gorge have changed since then. We have huge population increase and, you know, lots of new areas that need maintenance. Um, So some of the things that we're working with is just trying to work with other groups like the Access Fund and 
the Forest Service to try to maintain some of these areas. Um, and some of that is just in that new MOU, just kind of talking about how can we be good neighbors to you guys. Mm-hmm. Are there any kind of bolting memorandums in existence right now, or is all bolting bans lifted? Um, there's no, no bolting memorandums right now. No. A Clifty Wilderness, you know, you can't use drills, of course, because it's a wilderness area. Right. But you, is... you, cannot, you can't bolt new climbs. You can only replace old gear. That is in effect. So that's basically, okay. yeah, that basically means like if you can't go establish a new area on Forest Service land. Just period or do you, do you need period. Just prior? No, like you just no oh, more sorry, new Say routes. that question again. I was, yeah, I was just going to say like no more new routes. You can't go get like prior authorization. Like, hey, Forest Service, we want to bolt a new route in this area. Can we have, you know, official permission to do this? It's just straight up no more new routes. Well, it's not that cut and dry for sure. So that's kind of what we're working with the Forest Service on. Mm -hmm. It's more that you have to do the proper NEPA process and like all the archaeological and environmental impact surveys and all that kind of stuff. But we have a lot of threatened species and really just precious flora and fauna in the gorge. Um, So that's their, you know, they're there to protect that. And Mm -hmm. we want to make sure as a conservation and climbing organization that we're helping them support that mission. Um, obviously climbing's our biggest thing. Like we want more climbing always, but at the same time, we don't want to destroy the landscape while we do it. You know, you have white hair goldenrod is actually, I feel like it was removed. I think it's still on the threatened list. Um, and that is like a plant that's actually found under cliff lines. And so since the red being very famous for cliff lines, that's obviously an issue. There's also a lot of really sensitive bat species. Um, and so I don't know everything there's to know about bats, of course, but (laughs) there are several of them that dwell in caves and that becomes an issue when you're talking about bolting some of these like really overhanging cliffs and stuff like that, um, depending on if you're disturbing them. And especially because a lot of them have like certain little nests that they make for, bre- uh, sorry, for mating season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's a few like fish and stuff. So some of the fish aren't really in our properties, but I know we do have the arrow darter in the Miller Fork Recreational Preserve. Um, so we do the best, we do our best to try to make sure we're building bridges and things like that to cross over the stream so people aren't trampling through. But, you know, we don't know exactly all areas that they're in because we haven't had full surveys of all of our properties. I mean, they're just really expensive. I was going to say, just that's another thing to spend money on, right? Yeah. They're <laughs> just so expensive to yeah, do. Like it definitely. would cost so much money. Yeah. Well, bats seem to be a pretty hot topic these days. I know it's kind of ubiquitous, ubiquitous across the country. I mean, several other areas are dealing with bats and, and climate disturbance to bats. I mean, even in Colorado and I know in, uh, I think California too, and some other areas. Um, well, we can, uh, segue here to the next topic I wanted to bring up, um, the Access Fund's Climbing Areas in Crisis campaign. The red was identified as one of the top 10 climbing areas in crisis in the U.S. Can you talk about what issues you're dealing with there and why you're included in that list of climbing areas in crisis? Yeah, that was that was a shocking title, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know yeah, that there were a lot of people that were eye. like, oh my God, wait, what? Yeah. But I was like, well, if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest issues that we're facing in the red, at least on our properties, um, is just the erosion factor. And 
you see the loss of soil from belay bases just it can be down feet in some areas right. and that's not just devastating for the environment but it's also for climbers because really at the end of the day if your 5.8 started out or your 5.12 started out three feet up in the air mm-hmm. from where you're now starting and of course where the soil has disappeared it's just flat there's nothing right right so it kind of changes the nature of your climbs too mm-hmm. and you start seeing things like exposed tree roots and you know no vegetation under the cliff things like that um so it is it is a pretty devastating effect that that soil loss is having and it's i think one of the biggest things that i've heard pointed out before um curtis our land manager said this once you know back in the 80s and the 90s you had one or two people coming to a crag and then they'd climb for the day and then they'd leave and nobody would come back for a week or maybe even three weeks in the more remote areas and now you have you know a group of people coming almost every day to some of these same crags and so you're just seeing a huge difference um, there so that population increases really hit us hard um, we actually estimated in 2016 that we had over 50,000 visitors, wow. which is just huge. That's so many people. From 2013 to 2017 to, you know, just the increase in gyms. I, I'm not sure if you guys have read about that, but like, for instance, in 2013, there were 13 new gyms. And then in 2017, there were 43 new gyms oh built that year. Mm-hmm. And that kind of a thing, you don't always think about it impacting the outside. But when you have so many regional gyms around you and you're like a mecca for climbing, all of a sudden your area is getting hit hard. And this is an area where people can come and park and you know, you drive and you're hiking 15 to 20 minutes and you're at the crag. Some of the hikes are even shorter than that. It's right. very accessible for the most part. Mm-hmm. What kind of remedy do you do for that soil erosion? I mean, do you build some kind of platform over, yeah. the, over the soil? I mean, like the, the image is, that sticks out in my mind yeah so the best thing that we can do at this point and it depends on the area but you can take like gallery for an example Um, we actually put a fence up which really ticked off a lot of people but the whole point of the fence was that we were trying to preserve the forest and conserve the area the crag line right so this idea of conservation versus preservation is what you're preserving is something that's going to be untouched by humans essentially right the land as it is as it's always been and then conserving something for recreational use however is let's make this land functional so that we can continue to use it and future generations can continue to use it in the same way Mm -hmm. so we put up a fence we did like 5,000 plus hours of rock work. Um, And I say we, but really it was our land managers and the ACE crew and the access fund (laughs) and not mostly me at all, really. So really props to them. They're an amazing, they're amazing people and amazing souls. And I don't know what we would do without them, (laughs) but they did all this rock work. And the, the great thing about rock work is that rock doesn't erode, right? It's there for a very, very long time. You can build up a a crag with lumber, but it's going to decompose, of course. And so they basically terraced this entire area with rock. And then what happens is as the soil and whatnot is washed away from the top of the cliff, you know, when it rains or as tree foliage falls in the fall, it rebuilds that area to fill in the rock. And so you can essentially preserve at least or conserve at least where that line is now. So it helps rebuild the belay base, essentially. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So rock work, I think, is really the key. And then 
even though the fencing isn't pretty, just it helps people understand, oh, this is the acceptable area to be in. You know, you don't need to be 100 feet back from the crag with your hammock and your dog and your lunch and your stuff spread out. Like you can be 15 feet from the climb and stay in that area so that we're affecting as little vegetation as possible, essentially. A lot of the areas where you have more moderate climbs, you know, you're they're getting hit a lot harder. Right. So anywhere you yeah. have like 5, 10 and under, it's just loads of people are coming to those areas. Right, so we're kind of trying to like pack down and build up the belay bases there and the trails to really sustain that population. Mm-hmm. Another issue I think I saw on, uh, on the crisis campaign was human waste. Yeah, have you seen that be a, a really big problem? So it's kind of like a catch-22 because it's funny, like the past few times I've been out, I hadn't seen it at all in a while. And that was really refreshing. We did install a pit toilet um, down in the bottom of Miller Fork. And I think that that's helped some. We are working on installing one in the PMRP. So hopefully within the next year, we'll have that. That would be really great. But then I went out and did trail work with our assistant land manager just like a week or so ago and we were trying to get some rocks to build this staircase and i like go around the corner and there's just like this whole pile of toilet paper and i'm like why it's so gross yeah. <laughs> and it's like 20 feet from where people are climbing i'm like really oh, this is a little close you guys right um so you know take a shovel like bury it or take doggy bags they make like I have these really cool little bags for my dog that decompose. You could like pack it out and then throw it away and it'll all disintegrate in the trash naturally. It's great. That's great. But it's, yeah, that is that that sounds like too much work for some people. Yeah. Well, it shouldn't be though, you know, it, like it's just one yeah. little bag. It's tiny. Right. I know it's kind of gross having to deal with your poo, but like at the same time, it's more gross when you stumble upon three or four people's poo. You know, you don't want to do it that either. That's right. Or if you do have a dog and they go roll in it and then you have to put them in the car to take them home later. Oh, God. (laughs) So besides the human waste and erosion, any other any other big issues come to mind? No, those are those are like definitely the big ones. Um, Obviously, we're a nonprofit. So like lack of funding is always an issue. We could always do more if we had more funding. So donate. Hey, Um, (laughs) but that's you know that's every nonprofit everywhere right yeah. well i can i'll backtrack just a little ways you you raised about $75,000 from the Rocktoberfest where what's that budget look like or where where are those uh, funds being allocated to sure so oh man you might make me go pull up our annual report and remember <laughs> all that off the top of my head so our annual budget let's see our mortgage was around like 36,000 our events last year all together brought in about $66,000 okay. and Rocktoberfest was the majority of that. Mm-hmm. I will say Rocktoberfest cost around 20000 to $23,000 just to put on. Yeah. So, oh. you know, everybody's like, oh, you made so much money. And I'm like, yeah, but do you know how much money I spent just to make all this yeah, money? There's overhead that's just involved. business, right? Yeah. Um, so a lot of the other donations are going straight to land management it's going to acquisition. So we still have a mortgage on Bald Rock Recreational Preserve. Um, This year, we also have to pay down on our conservation easements. And I haven't mentioned those yet, but we have conservation easements on all of our properties with the access fund. And those basically say that if for some reason the coalition were to dissolve as an entity, if we just imploded or we all were in a horrific accident or whatever, and it all fell apart, um, our property 
would go as recreational preserves to the access fund who could then protect it. So okay. it's just giving it like a backup. So we're really trying to secure climbing in perpetuity, you know, for everyone. Um, so it's just like a big safety net. But we do have to, there are legal fees and stuff that you have to pay for that kind of a thing. So, of course, some of it's going to that. And I would say that that's the majority of it, honestly. This is land management and mortgage. And land, land management, that includes like the trail days and stuff and equipment. And yeah, so land management includes supplies. It also includes um, like roads, for example. You know, we have miles of roads that we have to maintain right. and they're all gravel. So having to regrade the roads or if we have to lay down gravel, you're talking like, uh, for instance, last year or year before we put in a parking lot, $13,000 yeah. for a parking lot for gravel, you know, <laughs> so like it's not cheap. Right. Everything costs money. Um, yes, I'm, I'm glad exactly. You, yeah, I mentioned, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the conservation easements. I meant to bring that up earlier. So thank you for, for uh, yeah, clarifying they're so that. cool. I'm, we were really stoked to be able to do that because it's just something that you know will last forever. Forever is a long time. <laughs> sure it is. So what uh, what does the future hold for the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition? Oh, that is such a big question. Um, let's see. So last year we announced Camelot's opening, which is essentially what we want the model for New Crags opening to be. And our land manager worked on this for like a year and a half in, co in conjunction with the developers so that the trails were built as the climbs were developed, belay bases were built, you know, and it really essentially built a sustainable climbing area that's full of moderates. And that's huge. Um, that's not something that we've really had in the past. So kind of trying to say any new area we open is going to have this like really well thought out plan so that we don't have to come back to it in three years and redo it. You know, OK, now it's going to last 15 or 20 years mm -hmm. with just a little bit of maintenance here and there, you know. Right. So I know that our goal is to open another new area like that this year that we'll be announcing at Rocktoberfest. Um, so stay tuned for that. And hopefully, you know, a new area a year for the next few years. I'm not going to make any promises on that, though. But, you know, if they can come together. And All then right. I already kind of hinted at about working with the Forest Service <laughs> on <laughs> opening hint. some stuff there. Yeah, so. hint, hint. Yeah. But hush, hint, hush hint, for now. All the, all the things. Yeah, yeah. All right, right on. Uh, is there anything else that I may have skipped over that you wanted to put out there and add? So I guess basically all I really want to say is, you know, our goal as the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition is to guarantee that climbing in the red is around for future generations. And it's going to take a lot of work. We're facing a huge increased popularity in climbing, and we really need the community to step up and to commit to preserving these areas. And it's happening all over the country and the world, not just in the red. Um, but the reality is what we have is finite. You can't build more mountains or more cliffs. Once it's gone, it's gone forever. So, you know, to anybody that's listening to this, I guess I would just say educate yourself, educate your friends on best practices wherever you may travel. Come to trail days and come to Rocktoberfest or donate. If you don't have money to donate, donate your time. We have plenty of trails that need building. So that's that's basically the gist of it. Perfect. Yeah, I was gonna, my final question was going to be, what is like your number one piece of advice for other LCOs? I think you answered it, but you want to add anything to that? Um, yeah, you know, one of the things that I love is 
I think that the climbing community has become so open. And so my biggest advice for other LCOs is use your community, use us, use each other, like communicate with other LCOs and with larger organizations to figure out how we can make all of our small priorities a big priority, because I think having a national impact is going to be way more doable. Um, all the voices behind that really make a difference. Thank you, Ashley, for taking the time to chat with me and being a wealth of information for the listeners. I hope you all enjoyed listening. I think the Red River Gorge is world-class for a reason. The accessibility, bullet rock, and amazing community experience make it attractive to climbers from around the world. I cannot say enough good things about it and recommend everyone adding it to their list of places to visit. If you do take me up on my advice, tread lightly, pay your entrance and parking fees, and fill out the waivers. And of course, it goes without saying, stop by Miguel's for some pizza, and don't forget your stick clip. You can support the show by leaving a review in iTunes, so if you don't mind hopping over there after you're finished listening, let iTunes and me know what you think. Hope everyone's having a great season, and I'll catch you all next month.